Hey guys, just giving you a quick update with this episode. You are about to hear the episode I just did with Josephine Maria Janicek Leschinski, uh, where we discuss Takashi, uh, sorry, Takeshi Mike's film audition. Um, it's a little unlike a lot of the episodes that we normally do, that me and Nick normally do, where, um, you know, we try to add in clips when necessary, so that way you can, when we're talking about a scene specific, you can hear what we're talking about, or I'd like to try to throw in some academic things, and very much like our Cannibal Holocaust episode, uh, the conversation was just so rich in this episode that... I didn't really feel like I needed a lot of that. Um, to be fair as well, um, you know, if we're talking about a specific scene from Audition, um, it's subtitled, so you don't quite get the the full extent of it just by hearing it, but, you know, what are you going to do? So yeah, it's going to be a little bit different. I also want to uh, reach out and let you guys know that uh, there were a couple mic problems while recording. We do. I tried to cut most of it out when, when applicable. Uh, but you do hear us comment on it a little bit. The the mic cable for my microphone is starting to go, and every so often it'll get kind of staticky. So that some of that's still in there, and we do discuss it a little bit. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that that is a factor. And then um, at the very end, when we start saying goodbye, hold out for a little bit, because I will be doing um, a review for Mill Creek's release of... Uh, of Ultraman, the second series in the Ultraman franchise, I guess. So uh, I wanted to keep it on brand because if me and Josephine were talking about a Japanese horror film, I felt it only appropriate to review one of the, the Japanese television shows that my sponsor sent me. So sit back, relax, enjoy the episode, and if you've not seen Audition yet, I highly recommend that you check it out because um, it kind of blew me away. And I can say that completely honestly, uh, I was not expecting the film to be um, as good as it actually was. Um, I knew it was going to be good, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm still kind of floored by how groovy it was. So here's my conversation about Audition. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show is sponsored by Mill Creek Entertainment. Mill Creek is the industry leader when it comes to value price DVD and Blu-ray features and compilations. They have one of the largest catalogs out there, ranging from kids programming, classic films and television, independent cinema, documentary, and Latino cinema. Hell, they even produce their own content in-house. Mill Creek is a trusted partner with some of our favorite studios, including Sony Pictures, Walt Disney Entertainment, Warner Brothers, CBS Home Entertainment, and many more. And the best part about Mill Creek is how easy they are to find. Mill Creek has deals with thousands of big box stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and practically any other retailer you can imagine. Trust me when I say I've owned plenty throughout my time as a collector without even realizing it. They're a name I can trust. Some of my favorite releases include Can't Hardly Wait, Night of the Living Dead, House on Haunted Hill from their Vincent Price collection, the complete series of Quantum Leap, the complete series of The Secret World of Alex Mack, And of course, you're the hunter from the future. Head over to www.millcreekent.com. That's millcreekent.com and see what their collection has to offer. I guarantee you'll find something great. I I figured we could probably start the show and then we can get right on to the topic at hand. I didn't get to Perfect. read. I didn't get to do as much reading as I wanted to about the film, but it's always kind no of fun in situations like this where um, I'm the one coming in who doesn't have as much knowledge, 
Yeah, because, so I can make stuff up. Perfect. Yeah, you definitely could. You definitely could. Um, but it's kind of become a tradition. And I'll touch on this when I actually do the the intro, where when I have people mm-hmm. on, I, I, I like letting them choose what we discuss as opposed to me showing people movies, because I, I do that all the time anyways. Um, it's fun <laughs> for me getting to see what other people are responding to. So like the last time I had a guest on, he really wanted to talk about Cannibal Holocaust. And I was like, okay, I've never seen this movie, but now I have an excuse <laughs> to watch it. <laughs> perfect yeah cool so i um because i i cannot do this show off a memory like some people can where they can just come Mm -hmm. in and talk and do everything i write notes for myself so i have my intro written out um awesome was there anything you wanted to talk about before we get going how are you doing today (laughs) i'm doing just fine i uh did not go to a midnight movie last night oh why why not why long story but Everyone bailed on me, and I just Jodorowsky. He's fine, but I just not someone I want. I want to trek out to a movie theater at midnight to see by myself. It's funny. You know? I, I Jodorowsky is a filmmaker that I know quite a bit about. It's like you, you couldn't go to an art film school without hearing that name thrown around. You just oh couldn't. yeah. Um, I'm he's kind of like Herzog for me, where I, I I've seen some of his stuff, but I know him as a personality more than I know his films. Absolutely, and honestly, I this is this is my hot film take for the day. I think him as a personality is much more interesting and nuanced than his movies. Okay, but uh, I have uh, Jodor, Jodorowsky can be a whole other episode. I could just <laughs> we can uh we can dig into that at some point. But like when I I took Amanda to go see uh, Jodorowsky's Dune at the Oriental, and she had no idea who the hell this was, and she didn't know what Dune mm-hmm. was, and she mm-hmm. left that documentary loving the movie. But it's like I was just like, well, she's like, why 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 would I want to see this movie? And I was like, well, just trust me. Once you see, once you hear this guy talk, you'll just be you'll be invested in anything he's talking about. Yeah, I have, you know, that documentary in particular really solidified my opinion of, and it's interesting, um, I guess, his, are you pronouncing his name Hodorowski because he grew up in Argentina and that's how he pronounces it? That's the way that I've always heard okay. it pronounced, but... Okay, that makes know. sense. I mean, because Jodorowsky is a, you know, a Slavic name, but that's, he grew up in Argentina. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure that I paid attention enough. I mean, I paid, I saw that movie at the Oriental also, same, same, possibly the same night you saw it. And uh, I don't know if I paid enough attention to how people are pronouncing that name. Well, it's funny. But, In that uh, documentary, they both they he they do I, both. Right? He's pronounced it both ways, but like he yeah. he refers to himself as Hodorowski. Right. Um, other people you would... call him Jodorowsky, but even yeah. though I've heard him call himself Hodorowski before, he mm-hmm. in shorthand calls himself Jodo. So yeah. he knows both ways. So I think it's because you said he grew up in Argentina. I yeah. feel like the J just comes out more comfortably as an H. Yeah. Um, plus, I feel like making it into an H sounds a little bit more. Dis- I feel like H is a better sound than J sometimes. Uh, watch your mouth because <laughs> you're talking to Josephine. But uh, <laughs> but, I was gonna, uh, I was gonna see if you're gonna react to that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, you know, I'm highly reactive. But um, I. Yeah, I that's that's it's interesting. I think that could be a whole other thing to delve into. I um he has a line in that documentary just to get off on another tangent, where he talks about art and him adapting Dune. Um, mm-hmm. And Dune is a story that I have dealt with a lot. It's a very close story in my criticism personally. And yeah. he describes he goes off in this kind of crazy rant where he's like, you you know when you when you get the bride after the wedding, you have to rape the bride. And he repeats uh-huh. that line over and over again. And that's how he handles adaptations. He says, you have to, you can't, 
you can't seduce her and be sweet. You have to rape her on her wedding night. And it was just like such a horrifying fucking like mm-hmm. analogy. And I actually wrote an essay I haven't published yet on uh, analogizing or analogizing whatever. I, clearly I read more than I talk. Um, <laughs> hard to believe, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, women with, uh, you know, um, art as a female thing that has to be dominated. Yeah. Um, Patrick Rothfuss does the same thing. Um, and I believe Stephen King at some point has a really horrifying quote about it. I will confirm that at some point, but, um, honestly, I wouldn't but, be surprised. Yeah. It, it, it's a very classic thing to do, right? Because the muses Pygmalion, like yeah. they're all women. Um, but he does that and it was absolutely horrifying to me, but I found out more about his backstory and the fact that he grew up knowing that he was a product of his father, like raping his mother. Um, and I was like, yeah, that, that would fuck me up. But that would yeah. be, that's, you know, that's kind that of really, so that comes out, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I was like really, and he, I think that is a point too in the documentary where they're showing that he is, you know, when I first heard it, I was like, Oh, what the, f-? like, screw this. This is disgusting. But I think they're trying to show that he's complicated. He's not, I think a lot of people saw that movie and were like, oh, man, Jodorowsky, he's the one. He's, he's everything. But the point is not that he's, yeah, he is, you know, he's, he's a, a genius in many ways and has a lot of really clear vision in some ways. But he's also complicated and problematic and, uh, you know, constantly goes back on things that he says are absolutely true to him. And that's just, you know, he's a human. Yeah, and <laughs> and like, I think that was a point where they were like, look, this guy's old and he's set in his ways and it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's like even um, uh, he had a very small role in uh, a documentary that uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's wife made about him. It was called Mm -hmm. My Life, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, about him making um, Only God Forgives. And uh, Jodorowsky had a small role in that. And like he he did a tarot card reading at the beginning for Mm -hmm. uh, Refn's wife. And it was like, the cards say you guys got to get divorced. This is not going to work. And then by the end of it, like, and like, he's just so, so like, you know, I'm sorry to say that's what the cards tell me. And by the end of it, like, you know, they, they work through all their problems and everything. And, and yeah. in the end, like he does another tarot card reading. He's like, oh, it says you guys are meant to be together. And it's like, he like, contradicts him. He, and he acts as if he doesn't even remember the first reading he gave them because like, she took it such to heart that like, oh God, yeah. this is my life is being ruined. And he's like, oh, cards were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and like it's, think, it, it seems like such uh, a him thing to like put so much faith in these cards. I'm like, ah, I got nothing to say. The cards tell me this is what's going to happen. <laughs> no, I agree. I think as much as he and he is his films and everything, you know, the the imagery, he's very much all about fate and destiny and you know powers higher than or or people following what they think are powers hi- higher than the human longing. And I think that he's a bit of an absurdist, which I've mm-hmm. always appreciated. He definitely, you know, he hangs out with the Dadaists and stuff, like mm-hmm. as far as his ideology. But um, I appreciate that. But I think that he's such a creature of the moment. Like, I don't think that he feels he has to develop things or like really think about them as much because he just kind of, he's going with the flow in so many ways. He's and the tarot cards are one of that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, um, and, you know, the, 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 we're not talking about uh, Jodorowsky today, but we might as well finish our thought. He's <laughs> yeah. also an interesting case too, because him very, like there, the more you delve into the world of art, I don't even just say mm-hmm. film, just films, the, yeah. the world I know the best. Um, mm-hmm. the, but the more you delve into the world of art, you, you, you realize that the more you dig into a lot of these so-called geniuses, there's very few of them who are not problematic in one way or another. Yes. And the one thing that was hard for me that 
by the end of film school and you know even time after that that I had to start realizing for myself was because like I used to be very reactionary and it's like you know if something if a director had some you know a, a troubling piece of work or had some troubling uh, you know points in his life and I was like okay mm-hmm. we just I just need to cut this person out you know whatever things yeah. like that and and I've I, it took me some time to realize that you can have flawed artists you can have flawed films mm-hmm. you can have flawed pieces of art and them to still have merit you yes things everything needs to be viewed within context and um and i guess i don't really know the point i'm trying to make but like jodorowsky he is flawed he is he can be trouble uh, problematic mm-hmm. but there's still a lot there yes absolutely yeah. i agree and I feel like that also ties into the film that we're going to be talking about today. Because yes, it does. Good segue. Th- thank you. Thank you. I've been doing this show for three years. Every so often I have a decent segue. <laughs> Warning. This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Vyers, and today I've got a very special guest. She's a film critic, theorist, cinema lover, and advocate for human rights and diversity in the arts. My friend, Josephine Maria Janicek Lashinsky. I worked Leschinski. on it. Leschinski. I was working on it before <laughs> I. I was working on it before I uh, before I called you. Leschinski. It's okay. Hodorowski, Yodorowski, no problem. Exactly. Well, <laughs> I, it's going to get interesting because I am. Uh, I was practicing some of the names for this film, and we'll see how well I do. Ooh. But uh, before we get into the topic, uh, we've been talking mm-hmm. for a little bit. If you want to tell the listeners, uh, kind of a little bit, of, you know, I, I summarized you very quickly, but tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Yeah, actually, that was a beautiful intro. I feel like you made me sound very important. Thank you. You're very, you're um, very welcome. <laughs> um, so I, uh, yeah, film critic is probably accurate at this point. I do a lot of other stuff. I write, I uh, take photos. Um, honestly, after that intro, I just don't even want to say anything because I was like, <laughs> that was just so like concise and makes me sound so cool. I, um, I will say that I started film criticism because I got really sick when I was in high school and had to spend several weeks doing nothing but watching movies and my local library only had weird foreign films um available because everyone would check out the really popular ones first <laughs> that sounds about so right. yeah and so i, I dove into to for the world of foreign cinema japanese horror was a particular favorite and then i eventually got in, an interest in studying media from a feminist perspective um personally i, I have a degree in east asian art history has uh, a little bit with to do with film but not a whole lot um, and I, yeah, I've been doing it kind of unacademically in academic circles for years now that I think about it. <laughs> it's been Lloyd like Co- 10 years. You and Lloyd Kaufman <laughs> could have a great conversation because he's also got a degree in Chinese history. I would love to talk to Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, when we met each other, so we met each other in college. We were yes. in the same storytelling through board game. I don't remember exactly what he role what playing tabletop role playing games. Yes, yeah. where uh, we 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 devised the rules of this. We essentially played uh, um, 
watered down D and D to an extent in a world <laughs> it was that we world created. Of darkness, but yeah, yeah. Well, I I'm also a, I'm also a game designer, so I'm going to be really specific. No, no, that's fine because I couldn't remember what it was. I just that was my yeah. first experience with tabletop gaming. So oh, I didn't um, know that. Wow. I I I I I had dabbled in it, but I didn't mm-hmm. I was didn't know much about it. Um, wow. And then we use the the adventures that we essentially had in class to fuel our short stories. And so me and you met each other then, and. Oddly enough, it wasn't years later until we started talking about film. Yes. Like, I, it's one of those things I didn't even realize that you had an interest in. Because, like, even when we became, like, friends on the internet, you didn't talk much about it. So I didn't even know that was something that you were you were pursuing. So it was, like, it was it was kind of exciting for me when you started coming to me and looking for recommendations. And I'd come to you. And I was like, oh, I've got a... Because there's a... Everyone can talk about movies. Everyone likes yeah. movies. But there's very... And I feel like you you might even have this too. There's very few people that I feel like I can have a conversation about movies with. Yeah, I um, yeah, I, I think you've seen a lot of my online dating complaints recently, <laughs> and that's one of them. Um, everyone loves saying I like that movie, but I want to talk about why we like that movie, and then what we didn't like about that movie, and then the context of that movie and that director and everything else. Um, <laughs> I have a fun yeah. story about that, real quick. After you finish Ooh, your thought, perfect. Um, I was just going to say, yeah, it's interesting that you didn't know I would like film. I think a lot of people didn't. I am. Um, so I have since, you know, we started since we've known each other now been invited to panels, some of which you put me on um, <laughs> to talk about horror and film and cinema and like conventions. And I've written for several publications. It's been lovely. But for so long, I felt like I didn't have I was not allowed to talk about movies because I didn't I don't have a degree in it. I didn't go to school for it. I um, didn't have film friends. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I'm a, I'm a lady, you know, I'm a yeah. cis, uh, queer woman. And it's very hard to, uh, get that perspective or be able to feel like I'm allowed to talk about that perspective because I'm not into the traditional horror as yeah. much. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And I think for a long time I didn't talk about it openly. It was just something I quietly enjoyed and I'm so glad I can talk about it openly now. And I'm hoping that more people like me or people with different perspectives are going to be able to just talk about movies comfortably with, I, you know, I, I consider you my classic horror fan friend Yeah, and, you know, more people like you. So yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. No, no problem. And while this show is not, you know, exclusively horror, we do a little bit of everything. Um, that is kind of in my niche and, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's some, it was a niche that I got in college and I fought for because I got sly looks from people. And because Genre, of that, yes. because of that, I like I, it was something I loved going into college, but I became obnoxious about it just to piss people off. Mm-hmm. Um, because I some of my other professors didn't really like it, or they thought it was there was no merit to any of it. And yes, there's plenty of bad horror out there that has no merit, but mm-hmm. I personally like trying to find the merit in bad stuff. But yeah, um, no, I think it's it's. I, I find it fascinating that you felt like you couldn't talk about horror because you didn't have a degree in it. I'm going to be completely honest with you. I have a degree in it, and I still feel like sometimes you have more to say about it than I do. So <laughs> degree doesn't mean anything. Um, I agree. I know that passion. now, as a 29-year-old uh, person who fought and screamed and kicked and you know to get into where yeah. I am now, I... Uh, you know, I know that now, and I hope I hope to show others and make a place for others. 
Yeah, definitely. Perfect. Actually, I have one last question for you. Yeah. Have you ever had a problem? Because like, I know I struggle with it. Because when I started doing the podcast, it was hard for me to really consider myself a critic, even though that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever had a tr- had a problem referring to yourself as a critic? I try to. I would try to find other ways to describe it because, especially going through school, critic had such a negative connotation. Because most times, mm. most critics who, especially who are the well published ones, don't have much to say. Mm-hmm. Or, or kind of revel in negativity. And I never liked that. Even when I don't like something, I don't try to just be an asshole about it. Yeah, I think that um, I actually, so uh, being a film critic is something I always wanted to be. Like I always wanted that title. I always wanted to, for people to be like, oh yeah, Josephine, she does film criticism. And I only realized a few years ago that I'm not going to be a film critic until I start calling myself a film critic. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, like like your intro, but all of my friends all of a sudden are like, oh yeah, Josephine does film criticism. And it honestly took um, one of my editors for one of the publications I previously wrote for. Um, it was a publication called Femme Hype, and that one was actually primarily video games. So she occasionally let me write about um, uh, tabletop role-playing games as well. Thanks, Jillian. Um, she came to me with an email one time and just said, hey, I just want to let you know that like you were the first person who let me know that, let me see that I didn't need a master's degree to do criticism. And I was like, oh, am I a critic? Have I made it? Um, but I agree. I think that also um, there's a real there's a real culture of a certain group of people um, calling themselves critics and then not having any like only having bad criticisms or mm-hmm. not having much to say. Um, yeah. And I have a lot more to say on that. But like, continue. I was I was. <laughs> I was a t- I did teaching for a little while. I, I didn't. I mm-hmm. don't have a degree in teaching, so I couldn't do it from like you know eight to three or whatever. But I yeah. taught summer school. I did after school classes. I had to make lesson plans. I had to do love and logic training, and um, I had a film appreciation class of third, fourth, and fifth grade. And Yay. I would try to do the same. Th- you know, we'd watch you know kids movies and stuff, but mm-hmm. like. I always wanted them to be able to tell me why they liked something and why they didn't like something. And I, I yeah. instilled a rule to them when I was teaching that even if you didn't like something, find two things you did like. Because I don't care who you are. The worst movie I've ever seen, I've there's still been something that like, oh, that was interesting. That was cool. That was a neat shot. Like, there's something. And even mm-hmm. in the worst movie I've seen that, like, okay, that wasn't ter- that wasn't completely terrible. So I, I always, even to this day, if I don't like something, like me and Nick, who does this show with me, mm-hmm. we we force each other to find something that we responded to or something, even if we didn't necessarily like it. It's like, okay, this could have been something interesting. This there was a sliver of something here. Mm-hmm. So I think what I find with film with a lot of people who call themselves film critics um, is. I find the opposite that I think I find a lot of film critics who feel they have to have a negative opinion about a movie or like a, a they think they need a nuanced opinion by making it negative. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just saying, you know, it's okay to say you like a movie. And that's part of what I've been doing with my film criticism. I'm moving away from reviews now. I'm much more interested in essays and dig, really digging in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the movies I review, I don't review films that I didn't like. I just don't, yeah. there's, there's enough people doing it. They can review those films. Um, I want to talk about movies that I liked and even if they were problematic, I'll talk about that in my review. But, um, I think like, I, I just saw a film. I was just at a critic screening of, um, uh, queen and slim, which is a phenomenal movie, which but I'm I was reading for, Oh my God, it's so good. But I was, um, but a lot of the criticism I was reading and what I did was I, I did propose a review of it, but my review just, um, linked to black criticism of it because there's not enough of that, not enough film criticism by black reviewers. And, but all the other reviewers I was reading that weren't, you know, 
just ha- maybe it's a coincidence, but weren't black. They all liked the movie, but they they all felt like they had to somehow say like, oh, it was good, but the narrative there was this issue, and that was like in the headline. It's like it's okay to just say, hey, this was a good movie. This was fun. You know, I enjoyed it or whatever. And then you can talk about the nuances. But they, it seemed like they had to put that negative thing up front to prove that they that they were a film critic. I've learned a long time ago, especially when I started using Letterboxd, is mm-hmm. don't be afraid of the five-star rating. Sometimes just trust yeah. your gut and just go with it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not very often I get to talk to someone else who um, has had a similar path that I have in that mm-hmm. – um, like it, criticism wasn't necessarily something I was striving for, but it's kind mm-hmm. of a world I found myself in. But I had issues with kind of like the title sometimes, and you know, it was kind of trying to find my voice in this world. So mm-hmm. I thought I have this this unique opportunity, and if anything, I wanted to put it on on record in case someone else is out there who's you know sitting at home thinking I've got something I want to say about this film, but I don't feel like I'm qualified. Everyone's qualified. Yes. The, the first critic was just a person who was just a fan. <laughs> Absolutely. When it comes down to it. Mm-hmm. But um, on today's episode. <laughs> yes. Um, we we were, we're going to be talking about a movie that Josephine recommended. because But I haven't had a guest on this show in a while. But when I do, I let them pick the film. Um, because I like to see what's going on in the mind of my guests. So today we're discussing a movie that <laughs> you have described as one of your favorites, if not your favorite, Takeshi Miike's film Audition. So yes. you can now listen to me. Uh, try to, uh, try not to butcher some of these names. Can I just say first, uh, I love that you put it as to find out what's going on in their <laughs> move, their mind, and then my movie is audition. Well, because accurate. Jay Gilkay, <laughs> who was the, the the promoter for Mondo Lucha, he was my last yeah. guest, and he wanted to do the well, he wanted to do something transgressive because he he mm-hmm. doesn't get, he doesn't get to talk about a lot of these films because he is a yeah. teacher. So he's like, I've got two films I want to talk about. They are they're harsh and they're problematic, but I never get to talk about them. He's like, okay, what's your picks? He's like. He's like, first, Serbian film. I was like, uh. <laughs> I told him, I was like, I've been avoiding that film pick. for, I've been avoiding that yeah. film for a reason. And then he Did came back to it? me. I'm sorry, what? Did you watch it? I have not. Well, plus, I can't okay. find it. It's no, it's hard to find. I can tell you where to find it, but continue. Okay. And then uh, he came back to me. He's like, yeah, I was talking to my wife. I don't know if I want my, I'm a teacher. I don't know if I want my name searchable along with a Serbian film. I was like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> What's your next choice? And he goes, Cannibal Holocaust. I was like, that's better? <laughs> but he in came in with like three pages of notes on just Italian mm-hmm. cannibal films. There are so many. There oh my is. God. I, okay, I'm excited. To, um, I'm the worst friend. All my friends do podcasts, and I never have time to listen to any of them. But I'm now going to obsessively listen to your podcast <laughs> because all of this sounds phenomenal. Anyways, now I should actually describe audition. Yeah, yeah. Ayama. How, how does one describe? Well, audition? I think I Go did. A, I, I had to be as careful as possible not to spoil. It's funny. I don't like to spoil anything in, in my write up yeah. because I want to spoil it later on. Um, yeah. Ayama is a widow and has been raising his son, Shigehiko, since childhood. Mm-hmm. They live a quiet existence together, but Shigehiko gets old. As he gets older, he feels it's time for his father to find someone to spend his life with and urges, his, urges him to get back into dating. Ayama is reluctant. He's older and has been out of the dating game for so long, he fears that he won't find the right woman and will be wasting his time. To counteract this, Ayama's friend, a film producer, concocts a plan. What if the... Uh, what if they hold auditions 
to find him a perfect mate. They'll disguise it as all as being part of a film, but it'll allow Ayama to find a perfect mate. In comes Asami. On paper, she's the perfect woman, and Ayama falls head over heels. But Asama isn't the woman she's made herself out to be. Audition was a big was a big film for Mike's career. While he had been making films for years prior, Audition got him attention all over the world and made Mike's name synonymous with genre films. Mike, however, wasn't universally celebrated after Audition's premiere. The film was extremely polarizing, and critics were torn on whether the film was a piece of misogynistic trash or a masterpiece in feminist storytelling. This kind of pushback would become a staple in Mike's career. The film was directed by Takeshi Mike, adapted from a book by uh, Ryu Murakami by screenwriter Daisuke Tengen. It's also one of the many collaborations with cinema- cinematographer Hideo Yamamoto. The film stars Ryo Ishibashi, Aishina, and Jun Kunamara. How bad did I do? Uh, well, I haven't spoken Japanese in a long time. I primarily speak Mandarin, but uh, Aoyama, uh, Ru. Oh, it's Ru just Ru? Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there, it, there's, a, there's a more beautiful vowel flip there that I cannot do because I speak Polish and German and Spanish and Mandarin, but uh, not, not Japanese anymore. Um, and then the other ones, I think were fine. I feel know? like, uh, uh, Daisuke was the hardest one, but Daisuke, you killed it. I was, that was the one I was, ex- I was waiting. I was like, let's see, but you did it. You did yeah. it. I was having like that one. Um, uh, I just look like, I was just looking up like, um, phonetic pronunciations. It's like, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you, you know, Japanese, you know, the Japanese is not a, a, a language in any realm that I speak, but I didn't want to completely do a terrible job. So no, that's good. And I, and even me correcting you, I'm not sure is even correct because I, like I said, I have not spoken Japanese in years and, uh, we are both white people who come from the U S the Midwest, yeah. both speaking English. Yeah. So though I wasn't yeah. the first time I ever heard Mike's name, it was in high school and, mm-hmm. uh, it was around the, it was it was around the time that I think Ichi the Killer started getting mm-hmm. some attention. Yeah, speaking of his his polarizing films, the credits rise out of semen. 
Mm-hmm. That was the, the first mm-hmm. thing I like. I remember that just like surprised the shit out of me. But I remember everyone was talking about this film, and they didn't they couldn't tell me who directed it. They were just saying, "Oh, this movie, Eat You the Killer, Eat You the Killer." And I looked mm-hmm. it up, and the the font was so small it was on the computer. I was like, "The guy's name is Takeshi Mike." <laughs> I, I didn't see the two eyes at first, so for the longest time, I used to just call him Mike. Ah, I mean, makes sense. Also, it's Takashi. But... Yeah. Okay. Takashi. <laughs> Takashi. Takashi. I'll get yeah. it. I'll get it eventually. No but, worries. Uh, I. I. You know, I said I spoke Polish. I'm learning Polish, and holy macaroon is that language I'll uh, have to, hard to uh, pronounce. Get you in contact with my aunt. She's fluent. Oh, phenomenal. Well, I'm in Chicago. I'm in the, the place with the largest Polish population outside oh, Poland. Oh, then you're fine. You're um, fine. I have, yeah, I have, I, have a, I have a joke I tell about how much Polish I know that this old uh, babcia, this old woman did not, that I was waiting in line to see a Polish film with, did not find funny. She told me that uh, my Polish is trash, that her son would never marry me, and that my son, my parents failed by not teaching me Polish. So, you know. Oh, That's wow. how I'm feeling about my Polish right now. Oh, wow. We well, yeah, get <laughs> yeah. better. Her, her son will want to marry you, by the <laughs> I'm way. I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah, her, like, 26-year-old son. I was like, look, I'm a little old for your son. No worries. Um, All right. <laughs> no worries. Anyway. So, Audition was a pick of yours because like I, I wanted you to pick the film. Um, yes. And you had described as, Audition as being one of your favorite films. I will say I was completely blown away by it because I went oh in God. very much with an idea of what I thought the movie was going to be. And to an extent, it was but only mm-hmm. like the last 40 minutes. But it was everything that up to that point that really blew me away and made that end part so much more impactful. But before we start really delving in, why is why does this film resonate so much for you? And when did you first see it? <sighs> okay, so audition. First of all, can I also just say when you sent me the text because you had seen finally seen the movie, it was so satisfying. That was one of the most satisfying text message exchanges I've ever had. You should just, because uh, you were just like, frame it. what is this? And I was like, that's the reaction. That is everyone's reaction to audition. Um, sometimes it's a good what is this, and sometimes it's it's a terrible, like, uh, why did I watch this? It, it was it was the best what is this I could oh, I, I could imagine. Uh, it was so satisfying because I knew I was like, as soon as you actually see it, it's gonna be you'll see. It's um, funny, like I was in like I was watching it in like half hour increments, like I was told you, yeah. and like nothing happened in the first half hour, and I was still like mm-hmm. I was like I was I was invested, but I wanna hear your uh. part. Okay, why do I why do why am I so why does this film resonate with me so much? Exactly. I did write I sort of wrote an essay about this, but I, I do want to speak briefly about when I watched this movie. I saw this movie um also at the end of high school. I was dating my first boyfriend. Um and he suggested it to me. All of his friends were watching it. Uh they were really into Guitar Wolf, which is a Japanese band that makes Oh yeah, really they bizarre were, oh god, what was sci fi movie? movies? Yeah, what was uh I saw Wild one of the movies. Which one? Wild Zero. That was it. Wild Zero. Rock and roll license. Yes. Oh, yeah. I so, liked Wild Zero a lot. Oh, I, I do too. I love guitar. I, lo- I love that. Uh, I love that band. I love that. Uh, whatever. I love it. But uh, honestly, um, th- they started watching this movie because there was an explosion of interest in Japanese culture uh, mixed with grindhouse culture because of uh, Tarantino, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the U.S., so I watched this movie, and it was one of a seri- series of media that was introduced to me through this uh, through this first boyfriend. And the way that he always presented things to me was, yeah, you can see this. You should read this book, but you're not going to really understand it, but it's okay. I'll explain it to you. Ooh. And I was – yeah, and I was – it was my first boyfriend. I was so excited. I had a crush on him for years. And so I, I watched – that's also how I found the, the feminist science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin. 
And recently I was able to go back, reread all of her books. I rewatched Audition a couple of years ago and it was a different experience um, because, but the idea that this movie is, um, it, you know, I talk about in an essay I wrote earlier this year about how, um, you know, Asami's journey is really, she's seen as this villain, but the real villain is the expectations we're putting on the relationship and mm-hmm. on a partner to complete you and to fulfill this role that's very, very strict. Um, and that really resonates with me as someone who is a pretty chronically single person um, or someone who gets into long, you know, long-term relationships and then breaks them off because I feel trapped. Um, you know, the message there is phenomenal, but also just the the handling in that film is just so... The horror is not even like her obsession or the fact that, you know, she uh, there's a horrifying, gory ending because you see so little of that. Mm-hmm. It's that you're going on this journey with her as much as it is focused on Aoyama's journey. Asami is the one who really is is a narrative arc. You're following yeah. her trauma and her um, her previous relationships and what happened to her and why. And you, you understand why she's reacting in this way, which is so rare for female monsters. Mm hmm. And I freaking love it. I uh, I will so say good. one thing that I I found myself uh, really interested in is mm-hmm. the fact that I felt for both sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Like by the end of it, I was really feeling for Asami and could understand what brought her to this point and her way of thinking. Um, but what I also, pre- like, I feel like in a, in a, in a different filmmaker's hand, they mm-hmm. would have made, uh, Ayama far more blatantly problematic. Like he had, he, he's no, he's no saint mm-hmm. by any extent. The fact that he even agreed to do this audition, he had his list of things that he wants oh, a, yeah. a perfect woman to be, but he wasn't like from jump street, just like a terrible, like abuse. <laughs> like he was like, he, th- there was a, plenty of scenes in the movie where I was feeling for him, you know, watching him yeah. take care of his son and have his, like, uh, his journey as well. Mm-hmm. And, and having lost his wife and... Yeah. yeah. And, like, you know, even just, like, the the, the opening of the film, um, which, you know, is Ayama and his son, um, you know, um, at the, at the, his wife's deathbed. And mm-hmm. then it has, um, you know, I think I think it's the the title shot of them walking down the street, and you see the title for audition, and it's like, it, it, you you change the music in this, this could have just been a like Tom Hanks '90s drama about <laughs> a guy raising his son, and like I, I appreciated that he wasn't just like, you know, like the movie Hard Candy where the guy was just kind mm-hmm. of a fucking vile piece of Disgusting. scum yeah. right from the beginning, you know, and even like he said he had bad traits, but he wasn't necessarily like evil no and that's no absolutely and that's one of the the things i love about Mike's handling of this and the script itself is great and the book from what i understand i haven't read it um i'm not sure it's been translated but um the script's been translated no the book oh the book it's it's adapted from a book oh yeah um, i knew that but you said the script too so i thought you read the script no No, i mean because there's a script writer and the book the novelist but um i love that it becomes for me it becomes a critique on culture on, you know, dating and the, and the idea of companionship and like how we approach that, um, mm-hmm. in Japanese culture, but in general too, like this, this very heterosexual, um, monogamous standard for like how that should play out and what made her a perfect woman is very problematic. The ideas that 
um, you know, Aoyama was looking for in the first place. But yeah, I love that he is, he's a normal fucking guy that some bad stuff happened to. Mm-hmm. And the point is not that he is a terrible piece of trash. It's part of it is that, well, our culture is really problematic and doesn't, yeah. you know, does not supply what, what people actually need emotionally. Um, and I love that because yeah, if, if he were just a terrible piece of trash, mm-hmm. it would be a different movie. It would be, um, so that, um, actress who was actually a model before she started yeah, I read um, that. acting. Yeah. Sheena, she was also in a movie called Tokyo Gore police. And that I'm is much more, <laughs> oh yeah. It, that's another film I do enjoy, but it is a very different movie. That's much more, obviously it's the characters are not complex. The idea is you have gore and you have babes and babes killing in gory ways. And, um, you know, the idea is not, you know, there's this cultural problem. It's that we're going to, we're going to fuck some shit up. And that's what this movie could have been. It could have very easily been like a hard candy or, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and and I think that's like what was gravitating towards me. Like if I would have went into this movie cold, not Mm -hmm. know nothing about it, know nothing about the director, didn't even see the poster for the movie, uh, that ending would have been even more shocking because there's nothing like there's very little throughout this film that kind of, makes you feel it's going to go to where it goes. Like there's a couple like yes. hints here and there, but things don't really start ramping up until they go on their vacation together. But, um, and that, and be, but because I knew of Mika's work and I knew of the reputation of this film, you know, I didn't know mm-hmm. any details. I just, I've known people talking about audition. Um, mm-hmm. one of my, uh, in an earlier episode, we, um, I did an episode of local filmmaker, Drew Britton, and mm-hmm. we did an episode on our favorite slow burn horror films, and he chose Audition as one of his as one of his picks. So because of that, and because of knowing the reputation, I there was this amazing sense of dread through the entire film, where like I became very worried for Ayama, and then as soon as he mm-hmm. met Asami, it's like I I like my heart rate went up because it's like I don't know <laughs> how this is gonna play out. I don't know what's gonna happen, but something's going to happen. I actually read two two little pieces of trivia about this film this morning when I was researching it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them is that Sheena was cast by um, by Mike after she had just started, like her, her first movie had just come out and she met him and they spoke briefly. They had a conversation about her attitudes about dating and her um, opinion on love. Oh, I read this too. Oh my God. And then, but then because of that conversation, he cast her in this movie and basically, her and uh, she and her agree, or sorry, she and him agreed to um, have her act as naturally as possible throughout the film. Mm-hmm. So even though she is this horrifying monster, um, you know, serial killer, or whatever, you are seeing in many ways Sheena um, acting, you know, and reacting to things the way that she would as a woman who grew up dating in Japanese culture. Yeah. And it's like that was fascinating. I... The second part. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just continue your thought. Um, this, the second piece of trivia that I read was that um, Omega Project, who put out this film, um, or started started producing it, um, also produced The Ring, the original Ring, yeah. Ring You, as we annoyingly call it in the U.S., um, by the Japanese title. But they picked Audition, the story, because they were trying to get away from paranormal and supernatural element horror. Yeah. I did not realize that nothing in this film is supposed to be supernatural. And that may seem obvious to other people, but I was like, oh, yeah, I assumed that she was, like, a ghost, like, throughout the whole film. Um, so my reading of that film is, yeah, very different than um, what other people may read it as. But I was like, oh, yeah, she's, like, a murderous ghost. Okay, cool. 
Uh, and she's not. She's a real serial killer, and all of it's very literal. So that's like where, if I were a younger person, not calling myself a film critic, I would have been like, "Ah, oh, I'm a dumb idiot. I need to have my boyfriend explain this movie to me. Dang it!" <laughs> but honestly, I think either reading is great. I think they're both legit. Yeah, but... and, and here's the thing too, because like there there is a lot of subtlety to it. Where I uh, in a little bit, I do want to talk about the the um, use of time and space in this film. Oh, because let's, the, let's the, the the time frame is not very little, and I think that's also why it makes it so fascinating to me. But uh, you were talking about uh, Mike and uh, Sheena and mm-hmm. kind of coming together and making this film. I wonder how weird it was to read this film and then have to go have an audition with the director who's making this film, <laughs> and he wants to talk to you about love and dating and all this other. Like, I wonder how weird that was. Because yeah, the whole you know it's, uh, you know the whole point of audition is about making a movie that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. No, absolutely. And I think, I mean, luckily, I think they both were big enough names that they, you know, there's yeah. probably no funny business, you can assume, but... Yeah, Mika's been making films <laughs> steadily for, like, for like almost five years. He is years over 100. Yeah. Yeah, and he is over 100 now. He is quite... Yeah, uh, and, and Mika is one of those filmmakers that's always fascinated me, but I've seen mm-hmm. very little of his films. So, like, before this, I saw Each of the Killer in high school because mm-hmm. everyone was talking about it. So mm-hmm. it's, like, it's one of those films I have to see. And then mm-hmm. um, for the longest time, even like the days of DVD, a lot of his stuff I was having a hard time finding. So like Audition got pushed down so far for the longest time because I couldn't mm-hmm. find it. And then by the time it became readily available, like my interest was elsewhere. So it, right. just, it wasn't high of the list. Like I haven't seen Visitor Q either. I haven't seen his Dead or Alive films. I haven't seen a lot of his big stuff. That, I think at this point I've only seen three or four of his films. Have I, you seen Sukiyaki Western Django? I have not. I had I owned a copy of it. Tarantino my, released that one. Come my, on. My brother stole it, so I never got a chance to watch ah, it. Rude. Um, but I saw. I've seen Each of the Killer. I've seen mm-hmm. Now Audition. Uh, when I was at the Cannes Film Festival, I got invited to go see Shields of Straw. His his. Mm-hmm. Am- his American themed cop film. Yeah. <laughs> Which he was in the audience for, so that was like really surreal. Uh, and that's probably still a highlight of my life. Well, I didn't love the film. It's like I'm sitting in an audience with him. Okay. Somewhere. Heck yes. And yes. then I saw. He's somewhere um, here. <laughs> what was it? I think it was um, It was one of his more recent samurai films. I can't remember which one it was called. I saw it at the Times Theater. He's made a few of those. Yeah, I, I <laughs> so, want to say yeah, it was like, um, I don't know, I'd, I'd have to look up the title. But um, mm-hmm. like, I want to delve back into a lot of his you know, stuff from the 90s and the early 2000s. But he's still kind of a blind spot for me, as, as is a lot of of Japanese cinema. So it's something that I, like, every time I've seen one, uh, 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 or even not, just not even Japanese, specifically Asian cinema, I like mostly. Mm-hmm. Like, my favorite movie of, a, I don't I don't think it was last year, it was the year before, it was The Wailing. Mm-hmm. That uh, that was a Korean uh, possession film. Mm-hmm. So, t- a tangent, but unimportant. No, that's no, that's good. I I think um, I mean, so little of his stuff is released in the U.S. Um, international cinema in general, we really do not have a a lot of the films that I've seen came out in the U.K. first, and then yeah. once they get big enough, they come out in the U.S. Um, but the yeah, we don't see very many. Um, f- foreign film in general because we have the best cinema so why would we bring anyone else in um, but <laughs> that was my little sarcastic plug for Hollywood <laughs> but um, I'm but, sure they're all listening <laughs> yeah listen up Hollywood I got I got words for you I but um with Mike 
in particular, so so few of his films are released, and the ones that are that do come are the ones that are the most shocking that have created the most um, controversy. And I, I was reading about Each of the Killer the, the Killer this morning as well, um, and that movie was banned in Germany. Which, like, I don't know how much you know about German cinema, but if you get banned in Germany, like, you were doing something. Oh yeah, like it is uh, difficult. So <laughs> I would, you know, that's a little accolade to me uh, for Mike, but because I do think his films are nuanced too, right? I mean, we talked about the Serbian was—is it the Serbian film or the a Serbian movie? Uh, I, I've always heard movie? of it. I've always heard a Serbian film. That makes sense. Okay. Well, that movie is so horrendous, and the argument—a lot of the arguments from the critics and people who I know have seen it. Um, I've only seen part of it. Is that it is kind of needlessly so. Like, uh, you know, he had a point in making it, but it's really disgusting. Um, and I think that Mike is always, everything I've seen from him is much more nuanced. Well, um, he, he's interesting you know, for it's that. It's hard to dismiss. He's interesting for that reason, too, because one of the things I've read about him is the reason he's had 100 films is because he's a fucking workhorse. You know, mm-hmm. he chooses films by whoever asks him. Yeah. You know, like, oh, that's you want to make this film with me? Yeah, sure. And he, and that's actually one thing I appreciate about him. He, it's very old Hollywood of him, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you want me to make this this weird Western film? Sure, I'll do it. Oh, you want me to make this this film about an audition gone wrong? Sure, I'll do it. But mm-hmm. he always adds his own stamp to it. And there's yes. a, so, um, and I appreciate that because there's a trend in America that I absolutely fucking detest. Um, mm-hmm. It's when filmmakers are inspired by exploitation or genre and they just Mm -hmm. intentionally try to make a bad film Mm -hmm. and don't realize um that there's a reason all those genres have all those motifs yeah or you know Mm -hmm. that because a film's bad doesn't mean it was intentionally made that way um Mm -hmm. you know because i've seen films by arguably some of the worst filmmakers that had some of the best ideas because they weren't going off of anything they like i've seen movies that you wonder if they've even seen a movie in their life and it's like <laughs> it's not well made but there's something fascinating here and i love that mike is a is a filmmaker that tries to take these 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 genres that he loves especially kind of rooted in the exploitation and add this level of class to it yeah i agree and i think that um the idea that he takes on whatever he's asked to do, he, I was reading an interview with him yesterday and they asked him, how did you make so many movies? And he basically just said, this is the level of output that I'm comfortable with, which is crazy, but it's like all, uh, to be fair, all he wants to do is write movies. Um, I spent last weekend watching a lot of Zawowski films, um, this Polish director, and Mm -hmm. he, didn't put out a ton of movies because he was also writing books and doing criticism and doing his, all this other stuff. So for Mike, all he's doing is movies. That's what he loves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that also, um, I think directors who are asked to do films and then, you know, are able to put their own stamp on it, come out with some of the best movies. Um, Midsummer, as you know, is a movie I've been obsessed with since yeah. it came out. And Ari Aster was asked to make that film, I believe by a tourism like company for Sweden. <laughs> Um, so it, he, that was a contracted film. It was a film for contract and he does not like, he does not particularly attached to horror. He just decided to make a breakup movie and then make it horror. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's one of the most interesting films, uh, to come out in several years for me personally. And I think that another, you know, interesting kind of relationship film. And I think that it, it, ha- it only happened because he needed funding to tell this part of his story 
And he was like, all right, we're making a horror movie, but we're just going to put infuse myself into it all. Yeah, and like, and in a lot so. of ways, Miki is the same way. I've been trying to track down this mm-hmm. interview. I remember reading it uh, years ago um, where uh, Miki, which in the interview, he was great because he was kind of dressed like um, um, Eddie Murphy in like in, in bad where mm-hmm. he had like the red leather like suit on. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, I think it was like with Fangoria or something like that. It was a video interview and they're asking him about like horror and what it's like horror in, in, in Asia versus horror in the States. And he he makes a lot of horror films, but he's like, it kind of surprises me when I come to the United States because he's like, everyone's so into it. Um, he's like, it, horror in my country is for teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not you know it's it's not necessarily a burning passion to make it if if the genre fits the story he's a good storyteller he can fit mm-hmm. it into any genre but mm-hmm. uh, he's got a completely different take on the horror genre which is part of the reason why I think he's so good at it um, you know I've I've been a, a, a horror fan for a very long time but mm-hmm. I'm the I'm the first one to admit the best horror films are made by people who don't necessarily i don't want to say they dislike the genre but it's not their burning passion there's always gonna yeah. be exceptions there's some really fine fine made horror films out there by people who truly love the genre but i think the most interesting ones are like one-offs i agree and i i will say as well to go to that point about um in the u.s us having such a, a horror culture i think um and not to get too much into like U.S. film history, but no, post get into um, it. <laughs> post like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, and then a little while later, Evil Dead. The the idea of this DIY horror, um, where the production start to take on some elements of horror themselves, and like you know uh, actors being injured, um, the extremely DIY elements. I you know I always think of that scene in American an American movie that documentary yeah. out of Wisconsin actually where they're bashing the guy's head into a cabinet and he it's not breaking because they're they're if they're actually trying to break uh the cabinet door with his head and they have to like put a saw and axe on the other side mm-hmm. um but it's like we in this in in this country i think and this is a huge generalization have this attitude about making horror that it should be um actors should be testing their limits and that directors and crew should be really having a very physical hand in the process and that in some ways is absolutely beautiful and has created some amazing films that really changed things. But when I was studying Mike, I kept waiting to run into actors telling horror stories about how intense he is or how he worked them or, you know, pulling a Kubrick where he like absolutely pushes actors until they, until they have a breakdown on set. And I wasn't finding that because he's a professional. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's stuff that I'm just not seeing uh, as always, but um, it was so refreshing to dig into a horror director or a director that I know as a horror director and not see like his actors being absolutely traumatized and here and to even read like Sheena's words and working with him and why she went for a role is just, it's a testament to that very different attitude on approaching horror. Um, I was on a panel uh, at the Twisted Dreams Film Festival in Milwaukee uh, that you put me on that. <laughs> oh, I just, suggest- I didn't physically put you on there. I suggested <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you and really, uh, <laughs> and really uh, said that you'd be perfect for it. They did the rest. So I was I was moderating this women in uh, film women in horror panel and Wendy Keeling, who's a producer, director, writer, actress um, who now lives in Florida, said something about um, a recent there was a recent scandal at that point with a movie where some actors, uh, an actress, I believe, was assaulted on set um, because a director was like, no, we're doing it for the scene. And um, she talked about safe sets and the idea that, 
you know, if you if your actors don't feel safe, you know, they may be doing horrifying things and horrifying things may be happening, but they need to feel safe and like they can trust you. And that's not that's a sense that I get from Mike that he is, you know, this is a professional set. His, the stuff he shows is so freaking disturbing, but you're not hearing these traumatizing, horrifying stories. And I think part of that is that this is a professional job for him. He loves it. And because he loves it, he's going to make sure that it's professionally done. And I think in some circles, that's really missing in horror, unfortunately. I agree. Um, that's my little human rights uh, aspect to my criticism there. No, I agree. <laughs> like, I, you know, I, with the, it's hard to learn anything about the history of film without hearing stories like that. Like you're saying, it's yeah. not even just horror films. Like there's been uh, crazy things that have happened on all sets or just the way that, you know, some directors would get performances out of people and all this mm-hmm. other stuff, all this other crazy mm-hmm. stuff. And it's very easy to romanticize some of that. Not necessarily that saying we need to go back to that, but almost like this weird appreciation for it. It's like, oh, things were just, yeah. even on big productions were really down and dirty. Like I was, there was a, I was reading about Gremlins very recently, and they did an explosion mm-hmm. on Gremlins that was so powerful it blew the will the windows off of a building a block away. I'm like, oh, that's fucking oh cool. God. You wouldn't get away with that nowadays. Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot to be said about feeling comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like you said, like you'd imagine that Mike would be like this crazy fucking dude and he very well might be but he he mm-hmm. no it's it's not known no one talks about it and he does how to personal. channel it at least yes he, into he, the work <laughs> exactly um and i one of the things that i liked so much about this film was it kind of went against the because i haven't seen a lot of Mike's film it went it went mm-hmm. against what i was expecting to see because like mm-hmm. i said there was um it doesn't feel like a horror film through most of it. The music doesn't feel like the way it's shot. Mm-hmm. Like there's a very definite change when it starts mm-hmm. getting like that. And I was trying to pinpoint exactly when it happened. And I have a thought process and I'll mention that in a second. Mm-hmm. But for most of this film, it's almost a romantic comedy. Yeah. It's, uh, that's what I was going to say. It's a, it's a kind of a sappy love story. And it's interesting because even though you get this big backstory in Aoyama, um, Asami and him are pretty cardboard as far as like you don't really know their motivations beyond oh time to find a wife and then Asami you know is clearly trying to be an actress but you don't get that feel from her you're just kind of like oh yeah these two are romantic leads okay you just you go with it so what, what I was what I was gonna t- so you're saying how it's a super almost sappy mm-hmm. love story and then I love that it becomes like the ultimate male fantasy gone awry but yes. I have I have I feel like I've kind of pinpointed where the movie takes a turn, and let me know mm. if you feel like you agree with this. Okay. So, uh, I, I don't. Is one of the. T- it was. I think. Um, I'm getting. I'm getting the 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 series of events confused in my in my mind. But it was the point when Ayama called her one of the times, and mm-hmm. um, we saw her smile that she called him mm-hmm. back, and then the the ba- the body in the bag moved. Yes. And it was like the best jump scare of the entire fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because, and it's not necessarily that because it, it was so well orchestrated. There's such this great pacing and tension that you didn't see it coming. And that like you saw that bo- you saw that bag there and your mm-hmm. your brain will sometimes go. I wonder if that's a body. I wonder if that's a body. But since it never yeah. moved, you, you, you start swearing off. It's like, oh, that can't be what it is. And then that happens. And then the movie starts changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's uh it's around the um and then that's if I'm remembering the series of events correctly, uh it's weird they, they he jumped into marriage really fucking fast, uh, mm-hmm. but that could be part of the culture, I don't know, um 
and then yeah, they you went, don't date for very long in and, the older generations. And then they went on their trip to um, wherever that they resort. went. Yeah, and then you know she revealed her her scar her her burn marks to him. Mm-hmm. They they made love, and then mm-hmm. she disappeared. Well, did they make love though? Well, I guess I don't know. I assume that's so. I, that's what I love. No, I love that scene because you don't know. It seems like she drugged him or something. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden he loses time. Yeah. And you have no idea if they actually did that. And I love that. And then what I absolutely love about everything that comes after this is there you can read into it either way. You don't know mm-hmm. if this was a situation of everything that happened from her trying to find trying to find her to go visiting the old man with no legs to going to the bar to him being tortured is a dream or not. Mm-hmm. If it's his own guilt, fucking with him about the way that he went about this, and his own insecurities, I love that take. Or, because you know, it's it's very easy to swear it off as like, oh no, this is all happening because everything seems, for lack of a term, realistic. But it's also mm-hmm. like when the the visually the film extreme it it very very much changes. Um, mm-hmm. But then we start like you know. I was reading people's like criticism on Letterboxd a couple of days ago, and some people were like, "Oh, if you go to a woman's home and she's got a a, a dude in a bag you know, <laughs> drinking vomit, you that? should get out of here." And I was like, "Well, I guess it, I I assumed that was not real because he just showed up there. He just wound up there. There was no like." Mm-hmm. Um, and then he what, what makes me feel like this is all a dream is he woke up. Mm-hmm. at one point and then fell back asleep and he's back in the torture so yeah there, there's a couple different ways you can view it but that was the that was my instinct is like this might have all been a dream i don't I know i think that's something that mike does so well is the your perception versus reality and kind of celebrating the fact that it's a movie so you're never gonna know mm-hmm. you know what we are viewing is 100 percent going to be infused with our perception anyway because it's not real yeah um we have that fourth wall between us, and I he absolutely revels in the sublime of that, of the film, and it is just beautiful. I just saw First Love. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure you've seen it yet because it just came out. Um, that's his newest Just assuming kind of that I haven't seen something. Yeah. But it's true. I <laughs> have you seen? No. Yeah, I was like, I'm, yeah, I'm like <laughs> fairly certain. Um, well, First Love, he does that as well, and I won't get too much into it, but um, that and that movie is a Yakuza story with love, with a love element a love story element and um yeah it's very very good uh but he does it in that film very well and it's very unexpected because it is it's um i read one review that described it as a celebration of the end of the yakuza era as far as film um because of genre and Mm -hmm. you know i'm not sure i read it that way but it definitely uh yeah that is there that you perception versus reality is not clear there are points in that movie where it's very clear like okay this is this person's hallucinating this person's dreaming and there are other points where you're like did this actually happen but does it matter um and then there's a beautiful animation in the middle of it that really just pokes fun at the audience in a way in a really unexpected way um like you don't expect this to happen but i'm making it happen i didn't have the budget for it but i did put it in here um and it's it's 100 like yeah this is a movie and he does that so well. <laughs> yeah. Like, and he never wants you to think that you're not watching a movie. And like, yes. and it's, you know, and even if all everything that happened between Asami and Iyama actually happened, he threw in stuff that was so hard to explain in terms of a real mm-hmm. world. And it's 
it's kind of like how Argento builds a movie. Argento mm-hmm. doesn't want you to believe that you're not watching a movie. You know, Absolutely. there's that scene in Suspiria where the 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 the, the woman is driving to the ball to the 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 ballet school, and she's in the taxi cab, and there's this beautiful purple light coming in, and there's no motivated purple light sources. But who fucking mm-hmm. cares? It's a movie. Exactly, and that um, I. I love that he, uh, I guess I guess for me, the point in watching a Mike film is that, yes, it's a movie at any point, but it can still affect us. Mm-hmm. And that's what Audition did for me. It's just because it's a piece of fiction doesn't mean that it can't personally affect you very deeply. It's, and Audition certainly did that for me. It's the same thing, uh, a little bit of a tangent, the same thing I always tell people mm-hmm. about professional wrestling. Everyone makes fun of me <laughs> to this day for liking it. It's like, you know, it's fake, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so is Game of Thrones, but you still watch that religiously. Just because Absolutely. it's not real doesn't mean it doesn't have an effect. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and by the way, everyone saying that is watching reality TV. So exactly. Um. <laughs> but and like, so the, the things that really stuck out with me, I, I'm just kind of mm-hmm. re- repeating myself now to kind of yeah. jog my brain is the terribly mundane beginning of it. And I don't mean terribly mm-hmm. as in it's terrible. It's just it's very mundane. It's very it's, yes. it's, de- it's the definition of a slow burn horror film because they 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 really there's practically no horror through the entire film other than this dread knowing something's coming yes um the i I call it the house of horrors dream sequence where everything just gets fucking insane especially with the guy with 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 no feet and his prosthetic feet were disgusting to look at Mm -hmm. um and then the torture scenes were just beautifully quiet like i love that there was no like crazy swelling score and it's just unnerving and the sound design was perfect didn't i tell you i told you you need to watch it with the speakers yeah yeah and it was mm-hmm. great like I, I i don't usually squirm much during movies but i was squirming to do this and they weren't even showing you that much but because of the sound effects it kind of really helped paint a picture in your mind um i, I do have one funny thing in my note i yeah. forgot i wrote this um when i was because i i'll keep a little notepad open on my phone i'll just take jot down quick notes when i'm watching stuff um uh, that I, I wrote that Ayama is not an evil person, but he should be evil for putting a rug on top of a carpet. <laughs> yeah, that uh, apartment design was uh, clearly a bachelor. I don't even remember but, um... writing that, but <laughs> apparently offended I, um... me. <laughs> I yeah no, that's uh, I, I do love those little set design things where you're like, wait a minute, what what are they doing? Um, yeah. I, as far as when you're talking about everything, when everything turns as well, for me, um, rewatching the movie, because really when I first saw that movie, I was really gaslit into my viewing of that film. Um, and I say that because it was like, my boyfriend explained it to me before I saw it, I watched it and then he re-explained it to me and I was like, okay, yeah, that's that movie. Um, and I, it is kind of cool real quick that you're able to reclaim that film then from that. Yeah. I've reclaimed a lot of things, um, from that time period. It was apparently a very formative uh, time period for me, but, uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I reclaimed it for me as a, this, this film is very personal to me now. Um, so yeah, it feels great. Um, and I, I think that before, before even all, before she smiles and I love, that's my favorite little moment. Um, I really, uh, really feel myself in that scene. Um, kind of that little smile you get when you're like, Oh, now they're, you know, now we start now the game's afoot. Um, as someone who like dates a lot of people, there's always a moment where you're like, Oh, got them. They're hooked. Mm-hmm. We're good. Um, in a, in a good way, usually not usually I'm going to cut their feet off usually, but, um, with, 
that movie before that scene even happens, you already know she starts, she's been lying about her past certain things. And then for me at that point, I was like, Oh, there is, you know, um, there's the moment where you know that something's not right with her. So she's hiding something. Um, it turns out she was hiding a whole lot of things. What, what I find really interesting about Asami is, and maybe this is, uh, I've only seen the movie once, and w- mm-hmm. I have found sometimes with me, if I, when, when the first time I watch a film, I I'm, spend so much time taking it in that it's sometimes mm-hmm. hard for me to do a, like an analysis of it. But yeah. um, what I loved about it and is I get the perspective that throughout all of it, Asami really did like Ayama. Mm-hmm. Because, but she she shows affection through pain, very much like everyone else in her life. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like for me, it's like the the really telling mm-hmm. scene was it was it was how open she was about everything. Yeah, she didn't tell him everything, mm-hmm. but the fact that she showed those burn marks and told him what happened and how he reacted he reacted positively towards it, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's when she's like, okay. I can trust him, and now we can start getting crazy. Because it didn't yes. to me. It didn't. Everything she was doing didn't feel like she was doing it because she was she wanted to kill him necessarily. She like it's, it felt to me like this is how she shows affection. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I think that for her, she was betrayed. Um, that's how I read it. I don't think that's totally wrong. I think that she does have a very intense um, kind of idea of how to show your feelings. Um, yeah based on her, you know, the abuse she went through and the trauma. But I think she felt very betrayed because for me, so for me personally, and part of the personal part of the thing about this film is that I am, you know, we've talked before, I'm a survivor um, of sexual assault and rape. And she is kind of unclear, you know, clearly the, the trauma she went through was sexual in some elements, but it's kind of unclear what, how, what that means physically. And that's on purpose, which I love. I love that you never really know, aside from the burns, you never really know the full extent of what she went through. Um, so you can kind of interpret it. But I think that for me personally, showing your trauma to someone um, when you've started dating them is like a huge moment. Yeah. kind of sharing that. It's like a really important thing in your relationship. And then when they do something to either not accept that about you or turn away from you or um, later betray you, it's much, much harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is I really associate with female monsters because I think there are moments in my life and some of it is perception where the way that I react to things is what we call a trauma response. It's like I'm so protective of myself and I have this very hard shell around myself that I have extreme reactions sometimes that are like not regional, reasonable, reasonable or rational. And I think that we see that really magnified in the Sami. And so for me, it was that she loves him and she really became everything he wanted. Um, one of one of the things I covered in the essay that I wrote about the film. Sorry to keep referencing that. But no, I, no, that's um, fine. And I'll, I'll make sure to link it in the description <laughs> for this as well. Sweet, sweet. Um, so one of the things I wrote in the essay is that Part of this movie for me is when we are, when I am dating a man specifically, personally, um, so much of what many heterosexual American men who have grown up in our culture want is they want a woman who is there when they call her and has no needs beyond that, mm-hmm. that she doesn't have anything else going on. And some of that is just younger men. You know, I'm older now, but in my early 20s, certainly they wanted to text you. They did not want you to text them too much. And the idea that she's waiting, Asami waits four days for him to call. And she does that because that's what she's supposed to do. She's supposed to not. And he's being told by his friend, oh, don't make yourself too available. You know, don't, don't call her right away. Um, that's a very classic, you know, dating idea that I think came out of the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, you wait three days to call back mm-hmm. in the day after a date. 
Um, and I think to me, all of that was like, she was, you know, she had shared things with him that were extremely personal and she had really built herself up to be the perfect partner. And then he, um, even though it was incredibly minor in some ways, he didn't respect that by still being in love with his wife or whatever, his, his wife who was dead. Um, and to me, it was like, this was very much a trauma response for mm-hmm. murdering him, um, or trying to, <laughs> but that I was actually, my take on it. I actually forgot about the, him waiting, uh, I think you said four days to call her back. I can, I forgot about that detail. And it's funny that you mentioned that was like an early nineties, two thousands thing. Cause the mm-hmm. first time I ever heard that in a movie was the movie swingers. They have a whole conversation about the right amount of time to wait. And I think that just seems stupid. Like, when I met yeah. my, after my first date with my wife, I text her on her way home. So maybe I'm. Which is what, no, that is, uh, that is preferred by me personally. Um, and also you two are adorable. So good, but, um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> like correct. But, um, no, I, um, I, I've written other essays about, about loneliness and dating. And part of it is that there is such a weird disconnect where it's like, you don't, don't show too much interest because that's, that's not good. But also, um, but also show interest, sort of. Like the idea is, is that you know you are, when you're dating someone, you should be excited about them. But the popular culture often tells us, don't show too much interest, though. It gives them power, which is such a weird. You know, if somebody is going to get that kind of power over you and abuse it, don't date them. You should yeah. not be. Like, you should be, end your interest in them. Um, but yeah, I agree. And uh, I, it's something I experienced personally. You know, kind of dating around the way that I do. Um, you know, yeah, someone who texts you on the way home to say, hey, I had a great time or the next morning or whatever, that's lovely. Uh, but it, it's so much of popular culture. Specifically, I will say in my experience in heterosexual culture, I date across lines. Um, I'm pansexual, so I have, I have kind of different uh, cultures that I'm interacting with there. But especially when I date heterosexual men, there's a real attitude that they, they either don't want me to available or they don't, they don't want to make themselves available. And that, you know, I just don't date those people. It's fine. But it, I think it's pervasive. Yeah. And it creates really uncommunicative, messed up relationships. And I think um, when you mix trauma up into that, Asami happens. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about with this film, and I think mm-hmm. you, you're going to have the best perspective on it, is... Um, Perfect. I'm a male. I, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of things I can't really comment on because I don't have firsthand experience with it. I consider myself a feminist in that I, you know, I, I, I agree with the ideals of feminism and I believe in, in, in female rights. Uh, mm-hmm. And my wife's a big proponent of that as well. Um, but one thing I found really fascinating with this film is the fact that some people viewed it as misogynistic mm-hmm. and some people viewed it as, as feminist. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously a disconnect. I can ki- I can see why some people would view it as misogynistic. I guess I didn't really view it that way. But then mm-hmm. it also comes down to it's not even just with this film. There's been um, problematic films throughout mm-hmm. history, especially in the the rape revenge genre, mm-hmm. where some Here people, we go. some people will view them as feminist, and some people will view them as trash. Case in point. There, um, the movie I Spit on Your Grave. Um, mm-hmm. It's a film that the director has cl- has said that he made as supposed to be a female power empowerment film, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of there's a lot of like back and forth from men about whether or not it's feminist or it's it's misogynistic or or not misogynistic was uh, um, anti anti woman, mm-hmm. um, but a a female film critic that I really like her name is B J Colangelo she. Mm-hmm 
views it as the most empowering movie that she's seen in her life because it got her through some really troubling times. Mm-hmm. Yet a lot of other people view it as, as you know, as, as problematic than trashy. Mm-hmm. Where do you kind of like, wh- I, I know what you feel about audition, but how do you mm-hmm. kind of differentiate the two? Because if I've learned anything, you know, one person can view it's one thing, another person can view it's another thing, and there's never going to be a 100% this is the case. How do you view some of these these issues in films? I know that's kind of a weighted question. No, I, I appreciate it. Um, and Rape Revenge, I think you know, is a, my wheelhouse as far as what I deal with in genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's interesting that, um, you know, movies that got us through really hard times, um, then whether or not they're empowering, Kill Bill got me through some really hard times. That movie that's is actually really surprising. As considering, as... <laughs> that's really surprising considering your issues with Tarantino. My issues with my very relevant uh, conversational topics on Tarantino. Yeah. But yeah, um, my, my truths about Tarantino. But um, I, yeah, uh, yeah, I know it's interesting. It's a, it's a complicated thing. I was recently talking to someone, a very fascinating person at a party about uh, rape revenge because that's what I talk about when I'm at parties because I'm very fun. Invite me to all your parties. If you come um, in and talk about Miss 45, you're welcome. <laughs> but um, we were talking about Tarantino in particular and our attitudes about it. And I, yeah, Kill Bill is a movie that got me through some incredibly difficult times. It um, kind of the second part came out while I was going through a lot of my personal trauma. Um, and I watched it over and over again, had it on DVD. And um, it is such a problematic movie and such a problematic director. And I would not call it, you know, in truth, empowering, knowing the backstory and also even the storyline. Um, there's also something to be said about, uh, something that came up at this party as well with this very fascinating person was, um, the right to make a movie, the right to, to handle a story. Um, and I think it's very complicated to talk about, uh, rape revenge in particular, because so much of that genre has been handled by men because Mm -hmm. that's who was making movies. And the idea that anyone has a right to make a story, um, is so useless to me because, what does a right boil down to? I'm, I'm all about action. I'm all about, um, you know, the, the power to make a film. And historically, women, people of color, queer folk have not had the power, the money, the studio, you know, buy-in to make those stories yet. So only men have talked about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I Spit on Your Grave is an interesting one because that director lied about why, like, the inspiration for that movie Oh. He's like said three different stories. Yeah, I don't know if you know the. I so I, I know the based on true story. I I know the the version that I heard, and yeah, uh, tell me the version that you heard. I heard that he had found a a woman on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. version of the story. I don't with remember his all the kid, details, right? But yeah, that with that, his child. Yes. Yep. So um, that what's the director's name? Do you know? Uh, I can find out for you real quick. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I feel bad to be like that director. Um, Whatever. That guy, um, so basically that's the story that he told when the film came out. That he found a woman who had been raped on the side of the road with his child, and they uh, helped Mir her. Zaka- Zachary? Zarchi? Zach- it's a Hebrew Zach- name. It's uh, okay. Meyer? Meyer? No problem. No okay. problem. Um, <laughs> no worries. But he, um, yeah, that was a story that he told when it came out. Later, it turned out that he had read um, one of those like weird news snippets in the newspaper on the second page or whatever. Um, about a woman who had been found after being raped on the side of the road. So it was like a headline, essentially, that he claimed as his own and said, well, I'm going to... But the idea that he is going to tell that woman's story 
is so blatantly offensive to me. Um, mm-hmm. I get at the time that's who was making movies and whatever else. Um, I think that there are films that can personally gotten us through some really, you know, some really important stuff, some stuff that really thing, things that empowered us that were made by very problematic directors, but I wouldn't call them empowering movies. Um, okay. And with the idea of feminist film, it's so complicated because for so long, only one gender has been making movies. And that's a huge generalization. And I, I love pointing out, you know, female directors and non-binary directors and trans yeah. directors, but that is not, that's not the, the overwhelming population is in making movies and telling these stories. And, um, you know, the, the entire idea of feminist film as well is, is shifting. And uh, the idea of white feminism, which has been talked about more and more, and I'm so grateful um, because certainly there's been a very white, white cis perspective, straight, perspective on mm-hmm. the idea of feminism, especially in film. Um, I am, I'm excited, however, to take back Rape Revenge in particular um, and the, the relationship story. As much as I love Ari Aster and Midsummer, and I love this film, Audition, with Mike, there's still two guys um, essentially putting all of their frustrations about relationships and the culture around relationships in, on female characters that they wrote. Um, even though the actresses were very involved, which I think is a huge differentiator in these movies, I'm so excited to take back um, relationship movies, but also rape revenge films. So films like Revenge, which came out of France, um, I think. I think I'm correct there. But uh, <laughs> films like Revenge, um, films like The Nightingale by the Babadook director. Um, those are all phenomenal movies that are showing the full brutality of those situations, but it's being made by women who have gone through it. Makes sense. So that's my little. That's my little. Yeah. Yeah, because like I, it's I've always been torn on it because of uh, the rape revenge genre is always been is always been tough because mm-hmm. um, it's not really subject matter that I that I want to see. Like I don't mm-hmm. think anyone wants to see. I'm sure there are weird mm-hmm. people out there, but um, but yet I've always found um, some of the films to be to still also be endlessly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like there's this weird push pull with them where they're grotesque and they're hard to watch. But then, you know, once the, the revenge side of it comes, it, they can be, they can be fascinating. Wow. Mm-hmm. Again with the static. Jesus. Yeah, that is. Um, I do want to mention really quick too. Those, those directors are um, Jennifer Kent who did Duke and yeah. Nightingale and then Coralie Fargett, which yeah. whose name I'm probably mispronouncing. Anyway. Yeah, um, and- but it's another one of those films that uh, mm-hmm. I felt was. I know we're kind of getting off the topic of audition. But yeah, this no show's way. all about ta- film tangents, honestly. Um, <laughs> was um, you know the other prolific movie, a uh, rape revenge from from that time, The Last House on the Left. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've I've read a lot about that because Wes Craven, he hasn't always made the best movies, but he's a very intelligent person. Yes, and to hear him talk, I, I, I believe every time I heard him in an interview, and I could be completely wrong, and there's always this extreme earnestness because he's also his biggest critic too. He'll talk about mm-hmm. things that he could have done better. He could have, he could have, that could have been fixed. Um, and it's a very interesting film by him too, because while it is still also a hard to watch film, there's an, an interestingly enough a, a a soft hand to a lot of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like part of it is because he's coming from it from more the side of an intellectual, and it's a film yeah. that I, I once again I, it's a movie that I can't really watch, but I mm-hmm. find fascinating in that because it seems like a weird choice for for him. 
Mm-hmm. And like, you, you know, you listen to him talk about the film. It's like, I feel like I'm talking to a college professor about a rape revenge film. It's very, <laughs> it's very like conflicting because you see that movie and it's like the person who made this should be like a, a Toby Hooper-esque wild man. <laughs> I think um, with, with, so with rape revenge in particular, with the idea of feminist films in general, um, you know, this audition included, um, there is such a curious conversation to me surrounding those movies that I think when I talk to uh, men about, you know, rape revenge, they, exp- they think they know what I'm going to say. And they, they assume because their attitude is that I'm going to say men should never make these movies. Um, the question they believe that we're answering is whether or not men should be allowed to or can make rape revenge movies. And for me, that's, that's not the question because they have. And they have been the only ones doing it since time immemorial. And I am so tired, frankly, of watching movies by men, as much as I've in this podcast talked about how much I love certain movies by men. You know, y'all have been doing it for 100, 150 years at this point. Let's see ladies make some freaking films. Let's see non-binary folks make some films. Like I, um, for me, it's not should they, it's that they don't need to anymore. You know, you can come back to it one day. Maybe we can have one guy every 10 years do it just like one woman every 10 years has been doing it. But it's like, for me, the question is not should they, it's that I have seen that perspective played out so many ways and with so many different nuances. I'm just not interested anymore. Like I want to see, you know, can men make a feminist film? Sure, I've seen it done. It's been great. You know, that that pony trick has been performed for me dozens of times. And I am so interested in Jennifer Kent and Coralie Fargett. And, um, you know, I want to see other people make these movies. So for me, it's um, the conversation surrounding whether or not films are feminist is almost moot because mm-hmm. the time periods when they are made, we're only having men making films anyway. Yeah. And it's 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 also something like, um, that was a perspective I never, I didn't have when I was younger and first got into mm-hmm. making films because that's all I wanted to do. But, you know, I, I, it's something I still want to pursue and I, I, there's mm-hmm. still things I want to make. But like, as I've gotten older and I've gotten deeper into the criticism of it, I realize there's very little I have to say. Mm-hmm. Like, or not necessarily that I don't have anything to say. That's, that's false. It's, I don't have anything unique to say. You know, the perspective I'm going to have is going to be very similar. And that doesn't make me want to make stuff any less. It's Mm -hmm. just I've, you know, it's kind of coming to terms with the fact that, you know, I'm not special, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's because, you know, everyone goes to goes to art school thinking that what we have to say or what we have to do is different and special than everyone else. And it's not. And it doesn't mean you're not any less talented. Um, It's just you don't, you know, like you're saying, it's time to have some different voices. I think that there's a lot to be said for producers as well. I think yeah. that's a kind of an uncelebrated uh, role in the film world. One of my main criticisms of Tarantino, and I know it seems like I have nothing but criticisms for Tarantino, is that um, he is not, he does not, he for a short period did this, but he is not throwing his money behind all these female creators he claims to be uplifting. Um, yeah. And I want to see him, I want to see every single film be a producer credit by Tarantino. Whereas I'm seeing that with other, other directors and actors now, um, Angelina Jolie, who came out with, you know, she started directing and however you feel about her movies, um, and however you feel about her as a person, she has started throwing her money at some very, some directors who would have never, never had a chance at the distribution that they got after she threw her name behind them. Yeah. And, um, 
Uh, and Jordan Peele, who is in many ways a director, he's a minor- minority director who has made it. And he took that success and turned it around and was like, all right, time to start funding black film. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not the only one to do that. And it wasn't, you know, he has uplifted a lot of voices along with directors like him. But I want, um, as in directors who have kind of made it in some way, like Angelina Jolie, you know, she's also a minority director and actress who has thrown her, thrown herself into other creators. And that's, that's my main, uh, problem with Tarantino and directors like him. And the, the whole idea of a feminist film as well. It's like, I want to see more producers. I want to see more white male producers who are throwing their name up there, <laughs> you know, and, and giving the support and, and drow- drumming up the support, um, and money for, minority film creators exactly and and like a a a a a female perspective in a lot of these films whether it be director writer cinematographer someone of 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 note or power on the film you know Mm -hmm. yeah there's female grips and stuff like that but like i want to see someone who has got a vision um can be a selling point i know for me and amanda like um like the original black christmas is one of my favorite uh, slasher films mm-hmm. of all time, but the fact that the the remake coming out is directed by a a woman and written by two 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 women yes. extremely intrigues me. And like, because I was like, okay, they remade the one in two thousand, they remade it once in two thousand six, whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, it's I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, we don't need another remake of Black Christmas. We don't need another remake of Black Christmas. that's just trying to do the same thing. So yeah. it's like a a a a female led remake of this. This is what excites me more than anything. Yeah. So I get that, and sometimes perspective is all is all you need. Differently, you can have a relatively similar story, but just viewed through a different lens. Yes, female gaze, please. Yeah. So tired of uh, yeah, I'm tired of only male gaze, um, and it's not just showing the dick, by the way. There's other things to that. I was, but, a, uh, I was a big advocate for that at the Twisted yeah, Film Festival. That was phenomenal. Um, that was one of my favorite film viewing experiences. I, um, <laughs> Not that I'm not a huge fan of showing the dick, but um, how we frame the dick is the important thing there. That's my little hot, my second hot film take of the day. I will say I'm, I'm still surprised that that film got the the cheers. The slashing. Yeah, the slashing. Oh, like, it was fun. I think your intro, I think your intro mentioned that um, a guy said it had more dick than a gay porn, which wasn't even true. No, it, had it wasn't. One I, was, I was very disappointed about how little dick or, uh, yeah. was in that movie. Yeah, I, um, I was, I was uh, waiting in anticipation of it, and it was just one kind of disappointing penis. Um, and frankly, straight porn has more penis than that film did. Yeah. So... So like, but like, I, <laughs> once I once I found that review, I was like, well, this this is my this is my this is my leader. This is what I'm. Got to be with. your pick. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I we've we've once again gone off topic, but that's never a bad mm-hmm. thing. Um, Absolutely. So what do you have to say to the people that say see audition and view it as misogynistic? Mm. Make your own decision. Like absolutely, you know there and the, it's. You know, Audition is a film that was written and directed by a bunch of dudes. A hundred percent. There are some issues there, like a hundred percent. And a hundred percent, my viewing of it is based on my personal lens and my experience of surrounding that film. Um, make your own decision. A, B, I'm always, frankly, going to value the opinions of people with a lived 
um, you know, female experience or a lived queer experience, because something we didn't really touch on is that this is also a queer story. Um, she has a relationship with a woman. We should talk the about bar. that. We should, after you get yeah. your point out, we should yeah, talk yeah. about that. For sure. For sure. But um, this is the, you know, and that's something I wrote about my essay. She's a bisexual woman. You know, I feel that shit uh, as far as expectations put on you. And I, you know, um, so people who have that lived experience are always going to, their opinion to me on these topics are always going to have more um, weight because they have that lived experience to back it up. Um, and it's not theoretical. They, they haven't watched as much as I, I love Joss Whedon. Uh, actually, I don't love Joss Whedon, but especially some of the things that Joss Whedon has made. Um, just because he always picks ladies to lead his stuff up doesn't mean that he has any sort of understanding of what it's like to be a lady in those, in those um, experiences. Um, and Joss Whedon is another one. Throw your name behind some ladies, Joss. What are you doing? Um, but... Yeah, queer. Well, gay. Actually, I, it's a I, gay movie. It is. So I I didn't view it that way. Tell like um. Tell me what you how how you mean. Yeah. So I think um part of being a uh, minority sexuality, which is my fancy way of saying freaking gay, is that uh, I number one want to put gay relationships into everything. So I think a hundred percent you can definitely view it as not gay but the the bar owner when he goes to that bar um mm. and the neighbor is like oh she she hasn't been around you know she sold it or whatever I forgot about that yeah it's it's such a minor part of the movie but that was a woman and asami started working there and then they you know the way i read it was that they hit it off and they uh had a little relationship and then she absolutely betrayed her in the exact same way asami has always been betrayed which is they don't love her only they don't love her enough for what she's providing them. And I was like, yeah, all right, that is gay as hell. But, you know, I think some people, you could also read it. A friend of mine was mentioning that they felt like it was probably a mother-daughter thing because Asami, her mother is kind of out of the picture because mm-hmm. she's working um, or whatever is happening in that with her with her stepfather and, and the dance teacher. And I think that... um. You know, you could certainly read it that way as well. But to me, this was, and me viewing it as a queer woman, I was like, yeah, this is a, this is, this is what dating has been like. Hmm. <laughs> Before I, guess, I cut their feet off. I, I guess that's one thing I've, I, I've always appreciated talking about film with you is mm-hmm. that we don't always see things the same way because we do have different perspectives and there's not one true way to view anything i think good art Mm -hmm. has multiple interpretations but you've always been a fun person to talk to about some of this stuff with because you'll give you'll you'll provide insight to me that i hadn't viewed um Mm -hmm. and you're also not one to like i've i've known other people in my life who if, if i don't see the same perspective as 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 them, it's very much like how you felt when you were a young film critic. It's like, oh, I'm such a fool because they, you know, they they told me yeah. I'm stupid and shit like that. Yeah. You you know, if if you view this film as misogynistic, that comes down to your perspective. I don't see it that way at all, but mm-hmm. I can I, I can see why someone would go that go that route. Yeah. But I feel like they're missing some information. Yeah. Or, or they're seeing agree. what they want to see. I would agree, and I think um, it's very. It's also honestly very easy to look at this film in the context of other films being made at that time and being like, yeah, this is a lady who goes nuts because essentially she goes nuts from the D and then just freaking kills a dude for no reason. Like that's very easy to view this film as that. But I think that you're maybe not paying enough attention to it or 
Um, or avoid or ignoring the issues yeah. that Ayama clearly has. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because um, I'm sure there's people out there who watch this movie and be like, "Yeah, this is normal." Yeah, that and that's the other thing. I think um, a lot of what we call well, not even what we call film criticism. A lot of film criticism these days, especially in the horror genre, we take so much for granted. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we you know, sluts are gonna die, gay dudes gonna die, um, and are pervy. Like, you know, the black person dies first. Like, yeah. that's all. Um, and when people turn that, that's great. The When they use that and kind of mess with our expectations, that's awesome. But it's very easy to introduce characters. So much of the problem that I have with horror is that what is scary to us is what is personal. Mm-hmm. And so many of these uh, horror films that come out in all sorts of genres, I think slashers get called out a lot, but in thrillers, in suspense films, you're introduced, you know, here is a, a, a retiring detective Okay, this dude's going to go on a journey, he's going to be the hero, and then he's going to die. We know that's going to happen, and we know what he's like. He has a drinking problem. He has an ex-wife. He has a kid that he's never there for. We know that. Um, the, the hot female lead, she's in love with someone. She's sweet, but also has nice tits. Um, like, we immediately know that. Yeah. Um, that's another one of my favorite Wendy Keeling quotes, and this is a total tangent, is that on that uh, Women in Horror panel, the best thing I've ever heard anyone say about uh, breasts and horror and the idea that you always have to have them popping out, um, which I'm, I am glad we've gotten away, away from, is that she said, you know what? If you have nice ones, let us see them. And then we'll move on. Yeah. And that was one of my favorite moments in a, on a panel ever. Because I was like, yeah, okay. That, that totally, <laughs> that's a different I, perspective. <laughs> I loved uh, talking with you two uh, that mm-hmm. day because I love how uncomfortable she made other people be, like, uh, she made some of the men because yes. of how like outward and like boisterous she can be. I love, um, for me too. Wendy absolutely has the, the cred to back it up. Mm-hmm. She is, you know, you can, cause so many people dismiss one reason that I, one reason that for many years I hated calling myself a film critic is that as soon as I tell someone, Oh yeah, I write film reviews or I do film criticism. They ask, who do you write for? And the truth is, I don't write for anybody. I'm freelance. I publish my, my own stuff. And part of that is because people don't want to publish what I have to say. Um, or, alternatively, I don't want to write what people want to publish. I'm not interested in writing the, you know, a review of The Avengers, as I think we talked about before. Yeah. Um, you know, other people are going to write that uh, review, and that's great. I have zero interest in that. Um, yeah, I'm the same Or, way. like, the, the idea of a nuanced review as well. I don't, I don't care. I'm going to write what I liked. I'm going to write what was problematic about it in my, in my unique, uh, very rude, crass way. And I think that Wendy just came right out and said, when we were, when her and I were initially talking before that panel, said, you know, you and I are going to have very different perspectives on things because Wendy is someone who loves horror. She loves seeing tits in a horror movie. She loves excessive blood. And that is like, the fact that she came out and acknowledged that and we were still able to have this wonderful, fulfilling conversation. And we still, to this day, have fulfilling interactions. That is, to me, like, that is, that is the epitome of, a, of a, just a thoughtful horror fan. Because as far as, as much as I love horror, I do not love horror in the way that Wendy loves horror. horror. She, you know, she is an original. She is, she's at all of the conventions. She's pro- she probably loves horror in a very similar way that I do. Absolutely. And I love that. And I love, and I love that she is someone who I absolutely respect and, you know, I trust her opinion on things. I'm trying to, I'm going back over my notes to see if there's anything added to audition. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like we, we not only covered it, but we covered multitude of other topics as well. 
Yeah. And honestly, I think that's when the show's the best. It's like, yeah, there's plenty of shows out there that'll do a deep dive onto one specific topic, but I'm more concerned. I, I, I more prefer having just a good conversation about something that leads to other cool shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there anything else you wanted okay. to add about audition or if there's people on the fence about seeing it, like what you would, uh, oh. what you'd say? Um, I will, as far as being on the fence about seeing it, I know a lot of people stay away from it because they're worried about gore. I don't, I think there are scenes that are absolutely disgusting, like all the scenes in the house. Yeah. Um, but they are not disgusting because of terribly bodily things. Like, um, you don't see any of that stuff. And it is, it is horrifying. I think it should be. I think that we should let ourselves be scared in personal ways. Sometimes that vulnerability is so good once you get past it. Um, but I don't, I think it's a phenomenal film and whether you love it or hate it, I think it's worth seeing. Um, I, I will agree. say the dog dies, and that is really sad. Yeah, though I will say the the like the dog died and that bummed me out, and then I saw the bad effects for the dog. I'm like, oh, it looks like a stuffed bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think that may have sort of been on purpose. I don't think that because the point was not to. The point was that this is a horrifying situation, um, and that she was sort of taking things out on the dog as well. Mm, um, gross. But I, yeah, but I um. I, I mean, I think it's a phenomenal film. It's obviously one of my favorites, but even I like hearing from people who thought it was misogynistic as well. Cause they have such, you know, it, as long as they have a nuanced opinion on it, I think that's really valid. Um, yeah, and like if you can, like, it's such a different movie. <laughs> yeah, like even if my, some of my favorite films, I don't care if someone doesn't like a film that I love, just yeah. be able to back it up. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're dumb. Like unless it's someone I'm close with and I can like jokingly tell them they're dumb or something. But like, yeah, like I'm sure some of the films that I that I really responded to, other people aren't going to like. And I, like, yeah, that's that's cool. Just be able to back it up. Like, I was having a, a conversation with someone one time. I, uh, uh, Milwaukee Film Festival a couple of years ago was showing uh, the De Palma film Blowout mm-hmm. at uh, the Oriental, and it's probably my favorite of his films. And I was talking to someone afterwards, like, oh, I didn't really like it. Well, why? I don't know. I just didn't like it. Like, th- then you then you're not. That's not a, that's yeah. not good enough for me. Yeah, I am. Um... I agree when we're talking about film criticism, like when we're, when we're really digging into movies, I agree. I, I think I, I jokingly, I'm not sure if you saw this, but I, I kind of t- had an off the cuff comment the other day that I, I canceled the date with someone because they told me that the guy at the end of midsummer didn't deserve it. Um, that did happen. It was sort of a joke. That's not really why I canceled the date with him. Um, but it, it was something that stuck out to me when I was talking to him about movies. He really, um, he had nothing else to say about that movie. His point, he was like, well, none of those people in that movie deserved, you know, yeah, they sucked or whatever, but they didn't deserve what happened to them. It was like, yeah, and all of the kids in Friday the 13th didn't deserve to be, sta- didn't deserve to be stabbed. Like, you're watching a horror movie. Absolutely. Like, you're right. No one deserves to be tortured and murdered and burned to death or whatever. Yeah. Stuffed into something else. Yeah. However, if that is your only comment on that film, I have I have questions. I have concerns about going on a date with you. Um, so, you know, to me, absolutely. Like, have somebody back it up. Um, and I don't know, why are you seeing a horror movie if you're not if you're not ready to see some people, you know, some bad things happen to some people? Like, yeah, sorry, that's... but that's what this genre is about. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> there can be very interesting, thoughtful amazing pieces of work in the horror genre but honestly a lot of it's just watching people get stabbed or get yeah, spooked true. or and what I, have I, you it's 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 a it's supposed to be a fun time just go have fun 
Yeah, I also think that the um, the extremist extremism is absolutely an element of horror that I think people miss. Um, because I mean, my point there and with Midsummer is, oh, that guy didn't deserve it. Yeah, but that guy sucked. And that talking about men who are just normal ass dudes, Christian in Midsummer is a normal ass dude. I have dated that guy dozens of times, and you know, did he deserve to get what happened to him happen? Uh, you know, no, I guess not. However, the long lasting effects of what happened after that relationship were, you know, long lasting. Like, yeah, we're not we're not really going to go out and start murdering all our ex-boyfriends. However, the point is this extremism that this is the norm and it's frankly unacceptable. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> like honestly, that. it's it's same thing with uh, Eli Roth's hostel. No, those yeah. guys don't necessarily deserve to be tortured, but they're all shitty fucking people. Yeah, exactly. And, and the point is not, oh, we're going to go out and now we're going to, you know, torture hostile people who stay at hostels no <laughs> the point is that we're using this extreme method to point out issues yeah yeah that's horror much. and that's the definition of horror exactly well josephine i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking audition with me i appreciate you having me no problem and i'd like to do this again so hopefully we can find another interesting film to discuss but i did want to get a, a recommendation from you so, okay. uh, so Asian cinema in general and Mike are a bit of blind spots for me. It doesn't necessarily have to be mm-hmm. a Mike film, but if you had to choose one more film for me to watch, whether it be for Mike uh, or you know Asian horror, or just give me another recommendation. Give and, and you know give the listeners a recommendation. Have you seen Host by Bong Joon Ho? I have not actually. I know of it. Uh, I was supposed to watch it at a friend's house, and then I had a falling out with that friend. <laughs> oh, well, well, put aside that association. Um, Bong Joon-ho just released Parasite, which is another excellent film this year. Um, Queen and Slim and Parasite are probably my picks for best movies of the year. But uh, he kind of came onto the American market, uh, I would say, with 2006's Host. And it is, not to be confused with the Nicole Kidman film, um, it is one of... It is one of my, probably my favorite film. As much as I say Audition is like one of my favorite films. Host, I have seen dozens of times. I freaking love that movie. It is a monster movie like you've never seen before. It's a monster movie. It's a family drama. Um, it's about dysfunctional family relationships. It has a lot of the same actors as Parasite because he works with the same actors all the time. It is a phenomenal film, and I absolutely love it. Um, so that's my recommendation. That It's Korean, not Japanese, but... Um, and for Phenomenal. those for those of you keeping track at home, host is currently streaming for free on Tubi TV. Yes. So if anyone wants to, I'm probably that's probably what I'm going to watch at some point today is host. Uh, it's it's hilarious. It's devastating. It is scary. So good. So I'm gonna you I'm gonna turn it over to you for a quick moment and tell people what you're working on, promote yourself, all that good stuff. Oh yikes! Okay. I know it's always what the am I working? Part. I know, I, I should have prepared. Um, well, I release film criticism under a, uh, a publication on Medium. I do reviews sometimes, like I said, moving away from that, called Autour, which I recently was told by someone who speaks, speaks French, I pronounce terribly. Um, so it's A-U-T-E-U-R on Medium. Um, I am releasing an essay through the website Gaily Horror soon. I'm not sure I'm supposed to talk about it, but it's about oh. having sex with sea monsters. I, I, uh, I like that site. He, yeah, he told me he will, well, I'll tell you that later. Um, but I love that site. I love that site and I love Terry. Um, but I'll be releasing that and then I'm, I'm trying to find a home for some of my other essays. Uh, I watch all that Polish cinema because I am writing a lot about Polish 
um, supernatural fiction and cinema these days. So all that will be upcoming. I don't have a whole lot of solid projects to to suggest, but I am around and I am available for hire. And your Twitter handle is? My Twitter handle is J.M. Yales. It's Yales, but spelled Yales. So J-M-Y-A-L-E-S. Perfect. And as always, like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. This is my least favorite part of the show is always having to remind everyone to do that. Um, I'm at <laughs> Michael underscore Byers. I'm pretty much everything. I'm very available. And I did just have a new review pop up on ghastlygrinning.com. So check that stuff out. So It's thanks. good. It's a good one. No, thank you. I appreciate you you complimenting it. Of course. Um, and I think that's it. You have you have a good rest of your day. You as well. I'm going to eat some lunch. Perfect. I'm not because I'm kind of fasting at the moment. Oh, okay. Well, um, <laughs> I will. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, Mike. I told you guys that conversation was going to be great. Um, I personally love it. I It's when I was editing it. I had a very hard time cutting stuff out because um, every time um, we'd go on a tangent, it just it felt important. Uh, not necessarily to the to the conversation of audition, but just felt important in general. Um, so I really liked that episode. I had the, I had the same problem when I was talking to Jay Gilkey about Cannibal Holocaust. So, but um, as I promised, uh, here's my review of the second series of the Ultra series, Ultraman. So the back of the box says, From the land of light, for justice's sake, here he comes, our Ultraman. Ultraman, a giant alien from the land of light in Nebula M78, enters Earth's atmosphere in pursuit of an escaped space monster. In the skies above Japan, he accidentally crashes into a jet VTOL piloted by Hayata, a member of the Science Special Search Party, SSSP, an international research and defense agency that protects the world from monsters and aliens of all shapes and sizes. To save Hayata, Ultraman merges his life force with the dying human and vows to stay and fight for peace on Earth. Now, whenever the patrol faces a threat too great for them to handle, Hayata transforms into Ultraman to save the day. Ultraman was Suburaya's production's first color series, a sci-fi action-adventure drama that dominated the ratings during its initial 1966-67 broadcast run in Japan. The show was quickly licensed for release in America, airing in syndication for nearly two decades. Colorful, fast-paced, and packed with memorable heroes, creatures, and incredible special effects, Ultraman was the foundation for a phenomena that continues to this day and is now available in high definition. Um, So, Ultraman. I'm I'm a big kaiju fan. Part of that being the fact that I grew up watching Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was based on a TV show from Japan called Super Sentai. Where uh, Saban Entertainment took the footage from Super Sentai. Recorded a bunch of new bits. Just used the action sequences. Recorded all the in-betweens. And created the brand new show, Power Rangers. And I've watched both. Some of Super Sentai, and I've watched all of Power Rangers, at least Mighty Morphin Power Rangers I've watched all of. You know, this fascination with giant robots fighting giant monsters has stuck to the point that, you know, I was a big supporter of Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim films because it was essentially American kaiju films with still a Japanese influence. Ultraman was a character or a series I've known about for a while. I, I even a couple years ago, um, 
a new Netflix original version of Ultraman popped up and um, in an anime style. And I didn't watch it, not because I didn't have any interest in it. Um, I do, I will admit, I'd, I'd rather watch a person um, dressed up as a as a hero or dressed up as a monster than watch an anime style. But I'm sure the show's still good. But uh, it was when when Mill Creek announced that they were going to do these, I got really excited. Um, a couple episodes ago, I think it was only like one or two, I, re- I reviewed Ultra Q, which, as I said last time, is very much a almost Twilight Zone x-files style kaiju show uh, not all of them are giant monsters but and then as i read in the back of the description this one was going to be in color and the reason they wanted to be in color is because they wanted to be able to sell it to international markets and international markets uh, especially america were starting to get color tvs and they knew a color tv show would do better Subaraya did not have a whole lot of time to produce this show i think he was porting people over from ultra q um, as soon as they finished up their duties on that show, they were coming over and doing Ultraman. And the studio, Tokyo Broadcast Center, uh, TBS, wanted a a hero to help the monster or to fight the monsters. And originally, apparently, they they did like a Rodan esque bird that um, the executives didn't like because they thought it'd be too hard to just. Dis- differentiate between the monster and the hero and then they did a character called red man who would later on become ultraman um where he it's the early designs were him wearing like a wetsuit and everything and you know it's pretty much close to what the design we have now for ultraman and they thought this was perfect and um so every tv show is kind of based around this i'll talk more about um in just a second um some design choices so as the um the story said uh, there is a pilot named Shin Hayata who is a pilot. Uh, he's and um, he's in, he's sent out to investigate this monster appearance, and his plane ends up going down. But while he goes down, while it goes down, he he's dying, and Ultraman's stuck on this planet when his I think his spaceship or meteor comes down to. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've watched the first episode. Um, and pretty much Ultraman's like, I'm going to save you. I don't want you to die, but because of that, I'm going to be stuck on this planet then, and I want to, I want us to defend the Earth. And he agrees, and he gives him this pen. I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. It's called uh, the Beta Capsule, and the Beta Capsule, whenever Hayata needs to turn into Ultraman, he can hit the capsule and he becomes ultraman it's, it's the end of every episode um very much like power rangers this show has got its format usually it begins with sssp um having fun goofing around um they get some in- indication that there's a monster out there they go out to investigate the monster um they use their own practical means to try to fight it off whether it be their weapons their vehicles or whatever and it doesn't work everything's grave danger hayata shows up usually within the last minute turns into ultraman fights and then there's always some sort of joke of um the comic loop character ide uh being like huh where was Hayata during all this? He missed Ultraman, very much like the old Superman cartoons. Like Clark Kent, you should have seen it. Superman was just here, and um, it's repetitive but fun. It's definitely a show that, like, for me, when a show is this repetitive, and I'm not saying it necessarily it's a bad thing because I love Power Rangers, and that show's just equally as, as repetitive. Um, it's hard for me to binge the show. I did for the sake of reviewing this show, but this is definitely a type of show. It's like. 
every day, every other day, I want to throw on an Ultraman, I want to throw on an Ultra Q, and kind of delve myself into this world and have fun, because if I start just watching them over and over and over and over and over and over again, um, it starts kind of running together, but what this show does very well is, it's definitely a show that feels like it's meant for kids, um, the comic relief is definitely far more heightened than it was in Ultra Q, especially with the character of Ida, and it's over the top, and you know, someone steps on his foot, and he, it's its very Japanese humor. He grabs his foot and blows on it and freaks out and makes funny sounds. Um, all all the coloration of the, the, the SSSP uniforms are all very bright and colorful. Ultraman's very bright and colorful. Um, the only characters that aren't are some of the monsters, which I appreciate. I appreciate that they look like creatures. They look like monsters. And especially since some of them are recycled from Ultra Q, um, you know, they are meant to only be in black and white. Um, but what I think the show does very well is at the same time, um, it's definitely a, a attacking monster show. They save the fuck, the fucking monsters to the very end, which I, uh, actually appreciate. I didn't want the entire show to be based around a big monster fight. Um, it really lets us get to know the characters. It really lets us get to know who these people are. So we feel for them and we learn to like them, um, and then uh, it's built into the show that Ultraman has got a beacon on his chest. I don't remember what it's called. Um, um, I think it's called the color. It's referred to in the booklet as a color timer. And so since Ultraman's not from this planet, he can only be around for a short amount of time. He's got a beacon on his chest. He's only got about three minutes in which he could be on this planet before he essentially dies. You know, whenever his color beacon starts going off, a narration comes in and explains what's going on, um, and explains that Ultraman uh, is depleting of power, and if Ultraman does not finish this fight soon, he will never move again. Go, Ultraman! It's something like that. Um, and the reason I think this works is, one, because it adds a built-in tension. You know, his chest starts beeping, and it's like, oh shit, Ultraman doesn't got a lot of time. He has to end this fight soon. But then, um, because of that, they can't just structure the entire show around a fight. So, I don't know. It's it's dumb, but I appreciate it. And it's I imagine it was built one way, as a, a way to keep the, the budget down for the show. But, uh, no, I, I, I thought it was a really interesting um, addition to the character. And at, when I move on to Ultra 7, um, and then some of the like Ultraman Orb and Ultraman Geed, I'm curious to see if that continues to be a thing um but no if you're like me you're a kaiju fan you grew up as a fan of power rangers you knew of ultraman but never actually watched it. this the, these milk creek collections are fucking amazing really well restored great sound quality i haven't quite figured out if if some of the sound effects were added uh by um the studios or how it worked but some of the sound effects sound just amazing some of the fire effects and explosions um it sounds amazing um coming through the tweeters on my speakers so but yeah that's ultraman uh it's kind of hard for me to review rate tv shows because i don't i don't like doing going through and doing episode by episode um i think that's dull so i'd rather watch as much of the show as i can and then just talk about it with you guys and talk about what excites me about it i did the same thing when i had to review community so um that's ultraman thanks for listening guys thanks for listening to the episode with josephine and myself and um stay tuned for more shameless picture show action on uh, the next episode will feature nick and i discussing 
James Cameron's The Terminator, because Nick had found out that through um, just complete accident, he had never seen the movie. He thought he had. And on there, too, I also review, I will be reviewing two Mill Creek titles. I will be reviewing uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Putney Swope, as well as um, the Frank Stallone, Christopher Mitchum vehicle, Savage Harbor, a.k.a. Death Feud. So... Uh, once again guys we are the shameless picture show we are here every other week to talk about movies on our personal shamelists to better ourselves and better ourselves as movie fans and if you're not down with that i've got two words for you watch movies